Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have again tonight. We do not take it for granted to think that we can welcome you into this place knowing you are here, an awesome, almighty God. You love it. You would love exactly what we're doing tonight. And so we do welcome you, and we just pray that every, everything that you hear, everything you see, everything that you know is going on in our minds and in our hearts, because you do know, Lord, may it be pleasing to you. Lord, you know what, it, what we've all come from. You know what we're going through. You know exactly what is going on in our lives so detailed and intricately. And Lord, you are ready. Just like, just like you said to Moses, you are saying to us, I see what's going on. I hear your pain, and I am ready to do something about it. Lord, may we be so assured tonight that even in this lesson from Esther 4, that we can leave here different than when we came because we have been renewed, we have been rejoined, reconnected, and we have got back into where we need to be with you. It's so easy to get pulled to the world's culture and the world's way of thinking, and even our human nature wants to pull us into the wrong direction. Lord, may you use this hour to get us back where we need to be, that we feel your power and we feel your strength, and that we do dare to be like Daniel. Lord, may we see the contrast tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So, right, let's see your Bibles. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. All right. So we are in Esther chapter 4 tonight. And, um, you know, last week we kind of had um, Haman just kind of dropped out of nowhere. Um, I, I do feel, though, that in, and after the whole thing with Esther becoming queen and after Mordecai, he has kind of settled into, hey, this isn't so bad. I think he's even... I think he even got confident enough to say, oh, by the way, we're Jewish. I mean, you know, and I don't think it was any big deal because they didn't rock any boats. They didn't, they didn't you know, they had their little tradition things, that, that, but they didn't uh, bother anybody. They followed the rules. And, and so I think he had the nerve finally to say, hey, we're Jewish, you know, but it didn't matter. I think he was, in, he, she was queen. He's by the king's gate. He's with all the officials. I think he's worked himself to quite a place. They're comfortable. They like their places. And then all of a sudden, Haman gets dropped into the story. Now, God's providence and how God can use someone as wicked as Haman, but he did. And, you know, we were, you know, we talked at length last week about, you know, Haman and his people, you know, his whole ancestry should have never been from 1 Samuel 15, very clear that God intended for all the Amalekites, um, the Agites, they should have been destroyed, but they weren't. And look, now because of the disobedience, we have someone like Haman. And, and because of King Xerxes' pride and Haman's pride, you know, they've got themselves all worked up that they are they are two men that should be bowed down to. And they, they just get that in their, in their crawl. And, and because it didn't, it didn't go according to, to Haman's, you know, all of a sudden he hears Mordecai isn't doing that. I, 
they, you know, we talked a bit about that last week, you know, that, that Mordecai, they had their little traditions, but strong and competent and standing up for the Lord, we don't see any of that. There never was a time, and we'll see it even more tonight, that they, they could have cried for help. They should have known where to go for their help, and they didn't. You know, and we, we talked about how that happens, you know, from generation to generation. It gets weaker. If you're not on fire, believing it totally, you're not going to pass it on in that way. You know, if your children, if your grandchildren do not see you sold out to the cause of Christ, you know, it just, it gets watered down. And I think we're seeing that in society. We're seeing that in churches. And, and, um, and I think this whole story of, of Mordecai, it kind of proves that. You get a little more nervous and scared and panicky. And, and this is another thing I really saw this week. It was like Mordecai said, we got a problem and you and me, Esther, we better fix this. And how often when we're in a traumatic situation, you know, what should be our very first move? Our first move should be going to the Lord. Lord, how do you want to handle this? We know you're in all things. And so you're up to something. How do you want me to handle this? That should be it. But our, our fighting human nature, it, it's so easy then to fall in a, in a real, you know, funk. It's so easy to fall into a darkness. It's, all, it's so easy to look at things as hopeless. And it's so, it's so much easier going in your own self-direction than working at, oh, what does the word say? Lord, help me. Remember the verse last week where the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 1 said, you have to pay careful attention to what you have learned. Pay careful attention to what you've learned. Otherwise, you aren't, you're going to drift. It's just the way it is. So pay close attention to what you've learned so that the Holy Spirit can guide you and get you back and so you don't falter. You know, we talked about, we used a couple examples. You know, we, we even went into the parable of the sower and how we, we're so reminded through this story that, that every time we open our Bibles, every time we were in Bible study, every time when God's word is proclaimed, and we hear it or we're studying it, we have to decide what kind of soil that word is going on. What kind of soil is this word every time, not just for some, it's every time God's word is, because remember I said last week, it's so easy to come to Bible study and, you know, it, it's so easy then to maybe get distracted. Maybe I'm getting a little long-winded. Maybe I'm a little boring. Maybe you think this lesson doesn't quite fit you or something and then all of a sudden before you know it you're planning the events of tomorrow or you know thinking what's on tv tonight oh yeah fbi oh you know i don't know but it's just we start thinking these things and and um i mean i i'm gonna tell you the truth i had that this morning i had a lady come up to me and said you know what i learned from my friend whose pastor is teaching esther that um that Haman was from a group of people that were enemies of the Lord, and they should have been destroyed a long time ago. And she said, that was new to me. And I said, she said, maybe that would be something you'd like to talk about. And she said that to me. And I said to her, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, that was really one of my main points last week. Oh, oh I must have come in late. That's what she said. <laughs> And I, and I don't, I mean, we all do it. I'm not putting her, because we all do it. 
And, and so I'm just warning you, this is too good. Whether you think that you don't need it now, you might need it in two weeks. And that's why, you know, sometimes we can leave a Bible study and it had been so powerful, so good. But maybe, you know, you're off in 10 bucks too. And I just want you to picture this. The devil himself is clapping, saying, oh, I am so glad they didn't hear that because that would have been life-changing for them. You know, that parable of the sword, that is such a parable that, that needs us to really go into that because, you know, what good is it if you're really not going to desire to want to know what it says for me? What is this in here for me? You know, and I think Mordecai, the the um, on Rocky, so I think that's what fit him. I think, yeah, he was probably excited to hear some of the stories that maybe his parents or grandparents told him, but he didn't apply it to himself. He didn't let it go down into the soil with roots. And so it said, when troubles and persecutions come, you have nothing. And that's what we see. And then in Revelation, remember the letter to Laodicea? I mean, that one, you know, where the Lord said, write this down, John, John, I want these people in that church to hear that you're neither hot nor cold. And so you're useless. You're trying to play both sides of the fence. And you're useless, just like lukewarm. It's just that he says the word lukewarm. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because, you know, Either you're hot, and that's useful, or you're cold, and there's uses for the cold. I'd rather have you one or the other. You don't have to be both. You just have to be useful for me in some way. But when you're lukewarm trying to play the world and, and spiritual, I'll pick my days. He says, no, you're lukewarm. It's like spitting Yeah, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And, and this is what I think we see here. Because anybody who is tight with the Lord is going to, in a traumatic situation like this, they are going to cry out to him. And so, you know, I had you, I had you looking up verses. I wanted to let you again see the contrast between someone who is, who is following God no matter what, like Daniel and his, and his buddies. You know, they, no matter what they faced, they never, they, they worked in the palace, and yet they never wavered from their heart beliefs. So you can still live in this world and still, and still you know, I'm obviously we're living in this world, but you can live in this world and still be, what did we say, Sean, like a star? You still can be set apart to be able to, be a testimony for the Lord Jesus, even with all that's going on. We don't have to fall into it. We can still stand up and, and do what we have to do, work in secular employments, and yet still be a star, still be like a shining light. So um, now, you know, we saw in today's lesson, because you know, I mean, they, things look pretty hopeless here, you know. I mean, on this specific day, all the Jews are going to be annihilated. <laughs> and then that last verse was just so appalling, wasn't it? I mean, can't you just picture King Xerxes and Haman just puffing on their cigars and drinking? Can't you just say, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is no big deal to us. I mean, but this decree 
this goes out to everybody and it said they're all stunned they're all perplexed they're all bewildered they can't believe it i mean the jews obviously but even their neighbors even the people that lived around them they knew yeah they do things a little different but they're nice folk you know but they're wondering why why do they have to be destroyed it was just a big old question mark it didn't make sense and so that's where it was left last week and then and then i just had to sneak that first verse of chapter four in there so that you could picture because this is what mordecai did Instead of saying, Lord, you know, I know we should have been back. I see what now, I see what, what we should have done and we didn't. But I know that you're, you're on failing love and mercy and grace. We need your help. You know, and I, I'm just, I'm just going to read to you um, in, the, in the book of, of Ezra. I, want, I just want to make sure that... You know, we all are on the same page, and we all know. Remember, when God told Jeremiah, he said, you tell them that they're going into exile for 70 years, and then I will bring them back. It's very clear. We saw that proven over and over. We know that that's what God said. All right. Then a miracle. I mean, it is a miracle of God. He used King Cyrus who was such a pagan, he was the pagan emperor, the leader of the world before Xerxes, and God put it on his heart to let the Jews go at 70 years, because how would that big realm of people all of a sudden pack up and leave? I mean, I'm sure he had, would have had something to say about it, except God intervened. And listen to this. I just want to repeat Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and he put it into writing. And of course, I was on to say, and the writing was, I mean, he is saying the people that, that um, are... Uh, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem of Judah. So, you know, all you people, you know, all you Jews, um, go back. You are welcome to go back. And then he even said in this in this proclamation, in this writing, he says, and all you neighbors, help him out. Help them out. Give them gold and silver and, and take a love offering. Give them livestock. Help them out. You know, t t share a little because they're going back to this broken city and they've got to rebuild. And so help them out. I mean, this was something. And then we go on and we read that less than 50,000 went back. And the ones who have chosen to stay... You know, in the course of the 70 years, you know, we said that Mordecai's grandfather's father was the one that went into exile. So then, you know, from his great-grandfather to his grandfather and then to his father, somehow along the way, this firm dare to be a Daniel message did not come through. 
And because we know that Daniel's circumstances happened before Esther, you would think that these stories about the fiery furnace and the, the lion's den, you, you would think even, even Exodus and the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments and all those things. Now, they did follow, you know, they had their little rituals that they followed, their traditions but again, we're reminded we can be as traditional as what we want. We can have all of our things we, that, we, that we practice. But if it's not real in our heart, then we get weaker and weaker. So now when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, this is his behavior. He tore his clothes. So instead of going to the Lord and, and, you know, saying, I know we made a mistake, but instead he put on, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. And I think these words were chosen specifically because that we can almost see, we can see him torn clothes, sackcloth, ashes, and he is just making a scene. He's just wailing, and he is wailing bitterly and loud. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So apparently, this is not uncommon but because there's a rule that said, I mean, if you want, if there's some reason, there's something happening in your life that, you know, you're just intensely grieving about or you're intensely stressed out about or, you know, um, then you, in oh, another reason they would wear sackcloth, at least God's people would wear sackcloth, was a sign of repentance, which we don't see here at all. Um, and so... Um, here it says, but he went only as far as the king's gate. The rule was anybody who was wearing sackcloth could only go to the king's gate, couldn't go any farther than that. In every province in which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is traumatic. It's definitely traumatic. And so I, I'm not trying to downplay, I'm not trying to say that this wasn't traumatic. No, I'm emphasizing that it is traumatic. This is, I mean, let's face it, a whole, a whole group of people, God's people, are going to go down in one day. But here's the contrast. And for you who did, you know, your lesson, but some of you, you know, who don't like to do homework or whatever you want to call it, um, I, I want you to hear these verses in contrast because this was his choice. I mean, we, could, we always, once, once we're one of God's people, once we're included in that title, we have a choice. And that choice is either to do it our own way or we do it God's way. It's, it's not that it's not that hard to figure out our choices. There's not 49. There's two. You can either go about your the easy way. It's handling this experience. And you can either do it your way. And like I repeat, that's the easy way. That's, that's where you're going to get the most pull. Or you can do it 
God's way. And he has given us enough tools to be able to do it his way. And I had you look up some of these scriptures. John 16, verse 33. I mean, you have Jesus knowing that this world, because he's lived in it now uh, 30 plus years and before he was crucified. So he knows that this life is hard. Life is hard. And so he writes in John 3, 16, 33, I have told you these things because it's like he's saying, I understand. So I'm going to try to help you here. I've told you these things so that in me, you may still have peace. Because in this world, you will have trouble. I mean, I appreciate that about Jesus. He never pulled the wool over someone's eye. He was very truthful. And he said, in this world, you will, you will. After all, life is not easy. But then he goes on to say, but take heart. And the reason he says take heart is because he knows that that's where we have to go to, our heart condition. Our heart condition is going to determine what kind of actions are going to come out of us. And so he says, but take heart because what is supposed to be in our heart? God's spirit. What else is supposed to be in our heart? Thy word have I hid in my heart so that I won't sin against you. So when Jesus said, but take heart, go to your heart. Feed on what's in your heart. Go to your heart to where I can, through my spirit, remind you of what you have learned. And then he finishes that verse by saying, I have overcome the world I love justice, and in the end, I'm going to see to it that every wrong is righted. I have overcome. So what a, what a difference in the way to be able to handle it. He says, yes, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have traumatic times, but take heart. Go to me. Go to what you've hid in your heart. Go to what you know through God's spirit. And just Hang on to the fact, I have overcome the world. I am bigger than it. I've got this all, uh, I've got this all worked out. You just hang on to me. And then um, I had you um, look up that familiar passage, um, Romans 8, 28. I know you know that, but did, did you, I don't think that verse should ever be read without the 29th verse. Because you, I love the way Paul says it, don't you? When he starts right out with this principle, he says, for I know. I mean, there's no question, there's no doubt. For I know that God turns everything out. He works for the good. So all things turn out for good. See, don't you wish, don't you wish that that verse went like this? Um, uh, for I know that all things turn out for far, and that's the end. You know, that's the way you and I would love to have it, but it's far from the end. This is what you are to know. You are to know that God is always working for the good of those who love him. And it might not look at the time, but if it causes them to, verse 29, because what is his purpose? God's whole purpose for us is to turn us into the likeness. We, he wants us to have the character of Christ. So don't be shocked when, when things, when in this world you will have trouble. 
And don't be shocked when you have to say, oh, this sure doesn't look good, but God said that it will work out for my good because I do love him and I do want what's best. I do want to be a part of his purpose and his purpose is to turn this, this yuck human being and, and, you know, I'm not putting myself down, Grace, and don't put yourself down either. But again, we know we are sinners, only saved by the grace and the blood of Christ. So, you know, his whole goal then is to turn us into the likeness and the character of Christ. That's going to take some work. I mean, that just doesn't happen. That takes some hard trouble sometimes. It takes us going into his word and studying it so that the Holy Spirit can remind us of what we, we should know. And then in, in 2 Corinthians, those two passages that I had you look up in 2 Corinthians. I mean, it, it's just such a good reminder when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that therefore we do not lose hope. We do not lose heart. When this traumatic happens, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, all of these things should be renewing us day by day. So every day, we should be more and more like the character of Christ. Because we're learning that though outwardly, yes, this body is wasting away, but the inside of us should be growing and growing. And then Paul puts this, and you have to smile, don't you, when he puts it this way? He says, for our light and momentary troubles. You know, we're thinking this is dramatic. And Paul is saying, uh, you know, those light and momentary troubles. Because in the scope of things, and someday we are going to know exactly what he means, that whatever we had to go through down here, to be able to get us more into the likeness of Christ, that far outweighs them all. He is turning our insides and, and into an, like an eternal glory, it says. And that far outweighs our trauma here. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. And then in chapter 12, I appreciate this so too, because in our trauma, in our, in our most difficult times, Paul knew he, under, he, he had a few. He had been through a lot. And so he also knew in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, he also knew that, that human nature has a tendency to get conceited when you think, and boy, we've seen that, haven't we? In Haman and, and then Nebuchadnezzar and Xerxes and Darius and Belshazzar and you and me. You know, if, if people have given us some compliments and, and whatever, you know, and we, instead of making them a bouquet and bringing them to the Lord, because anything that we have is from him, if we forget that and we start patting ourselves on the back, Paul knows how easy that is to do. So he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because he had quite a few experiences, like being able to go and see the third heaven, and not everybody gets that. No one else gets that. And so he says, you know, I could have walked around and prayed and saying, you know, I know something you don't know, or, you know, something that's ridiculous, but sometimes it goes to our head when we have something someone else doesn't. And so he said, you know, um, because of that, God knew. And so he said, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. The Lord let it happen he, to torment me. And he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, no. In fact, he came back with the best words ever. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And you are weak. And so watch me put power in you. Just like what he did to Daniel. He gave him strength when Daniel said, I don't have any more. And the Lord loves that. When we come to him, and this is what I so wish Mordecai would have said, I don't have any strength. I don't have any power. I don't know what to do. But he didn't. And what a testimony he could have been to the rest of the Jews who were laying there in their sackcloth and ashes. I mean, you're as good as the leader is, Right? So now, when Esther's maids, verse 4, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, see, that's where I know that, that, you know, when Mordecai told them that he was Jewish, I, I know that, that they must have known she was too. It just didn't matter because they all knew that they were related because when it says, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, if they, if they didn't know that they were related, then why would they have to go and tell, the, tell Esther about this nutcase? But they knew that they were cousins and they were related, and she would want to know. Now, what was the first thing? Did you notice? What was the very first thing that Esther did? The very first thing Esther did wasn't, oh, no, I wonder what's wrong with him. No, the first thing she says is, here's a new set of clothes. You tell him to put them. I think she's embarrassed. I mean, she's the queen, and her cousin is out there carrying on loudly and bitterly and wailing away. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he would not accept him. So they come back, and they, then Esther summoned Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend Esther, and she ordered him now to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Now she's saying he refuses these clothes, then uh, uh, there must be a problem. So find out. So she sent this eunuch. So Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Remember last week, Haman said to King Xerxes, um, this isn't going to cost you a dime. I will, I will foot the bill. And the king said, no, no, I'll pay. But Haman, um, 
Uh, Mordecai told everything about Haman. He told all the details. He had it down, so he wanted Esther to know every detail. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, the reason why I read it that way is because I remembered the Holy Spirit helped me recall those same words that Daniel said. But the contrast is just totally unbelievable. So I went back into Daniel, and sure enough, I found it. I found the passage, and it was in Daniel chapter 2. And it was that when Nebuchadnezzar um, had that dream, it was that first dream. You know, these are Daniel's young, and, and, uh, and the king had this dream, and he doesn't even know what the dream is, let alone to have it interpreted. So he calls all the wise men of Babylon and says, you know, I, I need to know my dream, and I need to know what it means. And they couldn't. They said, this is ridiculous. It's impossible. I mean, you don't even know your dream. How can we possibly have an interpretation? We don't even know what you dream. We can't get in your head. And it said here in chapter 2, verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Remember how we talked about that? I mean, here it's, tra- it's traumatic, but yet how the Lord will give you peace. I've told you these things so that you can have peace, even in your trouble. That's what Jesus said. And Daniel, always he has always done that. He had wisdom from the Lord. And remember, he had the true definition of wisdom. And that was, I don't have it, so I go to the one who is. And so he was, he talked to this man with wisdom and with tact. So not only did he ask the Lord what to say, but how to say it. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So Daniel had the courage to go right to Nebuchadnezzar and say, hey, you know what? Um, Give me a little time. And I will find out. I will be able to interpret the dream. Just give me a little time. Then Daniel returned to his house, explained the matter to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now listen to this. He urged them to plead and beg for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. I knew I had heard that before. And look at the difference. What did Daniel tell Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Beg and plead for God's mercy. Go to him. Go to him. You need to do. What does Mordecai? No, no. Um, Esther, we got to figure this out. And this is what you need to do. You need to beg for mercy from the little K king. He should have been going to the capital K king. 
still trying to figure things out for himself. Attach, verse 9, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed, you talk about back and forth, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, they know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king is but one law, that is, he will be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. So really, Esther is saying, you know, this is the way it is. Um, you just don't waltz. And I'm thinking, come on, you're the queen. But we can see from Vashti, I mean, they only come when they're asked to come. And if you try coming any other time, the law is, you're, you're done. You can be put to death for that. And she knows it, and she knows that. So, so um, none of us take that chance because we don't know what kind of mood he's going to be in. And if he doesn't hold out that golden scepter, I mean, we're going to die, so it's not worth it. So we don't do it. And then she said these words, and, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. I mean, she is his queen. She's supposed to be this drop-dead gorgeous girl that was picked among 400. And now he doesn't even call her. She hasn't even come to him in 30 days. He hasn't called her for 30 days. So what in the world has he been doing? Where has he been going? You know he hasn't just been sleeping the night away. And I'm telling you, I mean... You go back to scripture from Esther and you find out, well, well he probably thought, oh, I'm, I'm in the mood for someone new and exciting. So, um, eunuch, go to the harem and get somebody squeaky clean, brand new and exciting for me. He had that right. It's appalling. Or, or he could say this, um, oh, I remember so-and-so. Oh, yes, um, I want her back. So go to the concubine and find her. Remember, he's got a harem of brand new virgin girls, and then he's got a concubine who he's been with at least one time, and they can't even go back home. So they're, they're in a concubine. And so Esther has not been called by the king for 30 days. I just think that is so sick. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Now, what does that sound like to you? Do not think that because you are in the king's house, because you're the queen, that you're going to be exempt from this because you are not. What does that sound like? It sounds like a scare tactic to me. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. This is when I wanted to jump in this story 
And I wanted to go face to face with Mordecai. And I wanted him to explain that to me. I wanted him to say where he planned on getting relief and deliverance for the Jews when he's not calling out God's name. And Xerxes is the king of the world. So where in the world is he going to go to find help when it's Xerxes' proclamation, his decree? So it's got to be something that he is using to work her. So, um, you know, if you don't do it, we'll find relief and deliverance from the Jew, for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. In other words, we'll all have relief, but you and your father, so you're going to die for now. Because it sounds like manipulation and a scare and a guilt trip to me. And then we, have, we, we love this verse. I know we love this verse, and we've used it so often, verse 14, or in the end of verse 14. But I think, and I looked it up in different versions, and it all says the same thing. And who knows? See, I underlined that because he's got the audacity to say, and who knows? I mean, like, who, who, who knows out there? I mean, just, I don't know how to put it into words, except why didn't he say, because God knows. God knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. That all of a sudden he realized all of these intricate details are God's providence. And he is working despite our disobedience. Praise be to God. Oh, didn't see any of that. No, he's just flippantly saying, who knows, Esther? Uh, man. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. I mean, and ever had someone that you love and you're grateful for? And, and you kind of want to, what can I do back for you? I mean, Esther had to have been very thankful that Mordecai raised her. I mean, who knows? She was an orphan. Who knows what would have happened to her otherwise? But he had given, I mean, that I think was wonderful. He was willing to raise this girl. And she is indebted to him. And he has come out with this request. (laughs) And I'm sure she's thinking, well, you put it that way. I really don't have much of a choice. You know, and yeah, she really did. She could have stood up. and But, you know, God is working, and I, I don't underestimate that at all. But I'm just, just really upset that, you know, these words are put the way they are here. So she says, okay, you know, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Now, we've seen that in the first part of the chapter. I kind of let it go Tell this. It says that the Jews with great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. I hear this all the time that, you know, and I had you answer that in the questions. What word is missing? What word next to the word fasting, what word should have been there? And that word is prayer. 
But that word isn't there because you know what prayer means. That means you are connected to God. And they are not connected to God. So they are start trying to figure this all out themselves. They're concocting this plan. Mordecai is concocting this plan. But they fast. Now, we know enough about fasting that it, it's Everybody knows what a fast is. I mean, you know, it, it's not just a spiritual thing. It, it isn't. When it's a spiritual thing, you'll have prayer in fasting because you want to be connected in this fast with God. But when it's just fasting and there's no mention of his name at all, I mean, when you have to, when you have, to have a colonoscopy, you mean you got to fast. <laughs> when, when you're going to have surgery, when you're going to have a blood test, I mean, we all hear the words, you got to fast for 12 hours or whatever. So the word has got so many different purposes. What are you going to do? It means that you're going to abstain from something for a reason. I mean, the new one now is intermittent fasting. So if you want to lose weight, then you got to fast for so many hours. I mean, see, it's got nothing to do with God. And so, you know, I, I was looking into Matthew 17, and this was when, I um, mean, the first part of the chapter was the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus took um, Peter, um, James, and John on Mount transfiguration and they had that beautiful experience well the rest of the disciples are back in town and there comes this father with a son who is demon possessed and he goes to the disciples and says would you please so I know you belong to him um, so would you cast out the demon from my son and though they tried and tried and they couldn't couldn't do it so when when Jesus came back from the mountain the disciples said to him, here's his father, and, and he has this demon possessed son, and we tried to cast the demon out, but he wouldn't, he, it didn't work. It didn't work. And Jesus' answer was, oh, you of little faith. And then, um, and I don't want to cause any controversy, because, you know, I study out of the old NIV, not the new NIV, the old NIV, and it was really surprising to me that I looked, when I was reading that story, I looked at verse 20, and then I saw verse 22. There was no 21. There was no 21 in this particular version. So, of course, my, my hefty old King James next to me, I looked that up, and they have verse 21. And you know what's in that verse 21? It's Jesus telling them, you need prayer and fasting to be able to do this. In other words, casting out a demon is serious business. And I'm pretty sure that's why I say, oh, you have a little faith. You tried to do it because he said, oh, you belong to him. So you, you tried doing it because you just belonged to me. You didn't do it in my name. You didn't do it with my help. You tried to do it. And so in verse 21 of Matthew 17, Jesus says, prayer and fasting. When we give up something for Lent, you know, it's, it's, we're fasting something. 
you know, let's say it's chocolate. You, you give up something that you know is going to be difficult, and that's going to come to your mind a lot in those, in those days. But what that's supposed to do then is when you want a piece of chocolate so bad, it reminds you, oh, that's right. He died for me. He shed his blood for me. So that kind of fasting, that, that works. When you have prayer and fasting, you know what you're, you're doing? You're inviting God into the situation. And then you're willing to accept what his answer is going to be. Because you're obviously fasting for some intense reason, for something that you need an answer for or wanted to be reminded of. When you invite God by prayer and fasting, it's going to give you a whole different way. And so it is a big deal that prayer is not along with the word fasting. And, and you say, well, you know, it's just assumed. And then I go back to Revelation 22 where, where Jesus says to John, you make sure you write this down and you make sure that they don't take away or add to Scripture. You can't just be adding words. You can't just be taking out words because you don't like them. And you can't add words because they're not there and you think they should be. No, there's a reason why God has the book of Esther written the way he does. Because then, look, it says, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. Her maids, they, they wouldn't know if God landed right in front of them. I mean, her maids are pagan women. And she says, oh, uh, me and my maids, we'll, we'll fast along just like you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, that is admirable. And that's why I asked the question, it's beautiful. It really is beautiful that she is willing even though I think that, that Mordecai, because look at what it says. So Mordecai went away and carried out all Esther's instructions. Oh, yeah, that was no problem. Esther's got the tough job. So he's just going around, you know, doing the little things she's asked him to do. But she is willing to, to take this chance and go. So, yes, it is beautiful and admirable. However, I also think it's sad because if she doesn't really understand and know her God the way she should and be crying out to him and walking hand in hand with him to this, then she doesn't understand why she's really doing it. For, for, for God's people, for the Jews, does she really know that they're really God's people? Does she really know from their little traditions? I don't think she totally understands this. What she's really, she's doing this because Mordecai's asked her to do it. And of course, God is using this. You know, just like God used Nebuchadnezzar, how he used Babylon I mean, I even say how he used Judas. When he can see their hearts and know that their hearts are hard and they're not going to, even though they've been given chances, like with Belshazzar, you know, 
Daniel said to him, uh, you know what that writing on the wall is? Uh, you don't turn to the Lord, um, you're dying tonight. And hard-hearted, and he died that night. I mean, you know, the Lord knows who's going to accept him and who's going to soften and if he, if he knows that they're not going to, I think he says, uh, I can use this. I can use this situation because of my unfailing love and grace and mercy. You know, as I close tonight, I, I, just, I just wish, I, I just wish with all my heart that, that Esther would have said these words. The words that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. And you say, well, she doesn't know Jesus yet. Well, she, you know what? God is still God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And his word still is the word. And they, they understood the principles, even in the Old Testament. And when Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But I really, really wish she would have said, for me to live is for God Almighty. And to die is gain. Wouldn't that have been something? Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson. And may our eyes, our spiritual eyes, be open to the truth how we can to have it both ways. And that how we just need to look at this and say, what can I learn from? I want to be true. I want to be real. I want to never, never not be a Daniel. I know if I feel weak, like Paul said, we can go to the one who will give us the strength. And to hear Jesus' exact words, my grace will always be sufficient for you. And you will find strength in your weakness because I will give it to you. Daniel experienced that. What a contrast in stories. So which way do we want it? When we're faced with our trauma, when we're faced with trouble, when we're faced with life, who are we going to listen to? Father, we thank you for making it so clear. You've given us the tools we need. May we use them. We pray this all in our Savior's name because he is worth it. Amen.